Welcome to the Can't Make This Up History Podcast, where we talk with historians and authors about unbelievable topics from the past. So how do we treat the poor? It's an open-ended question that our country wrestled with a century ago and one it still wrestles with today. For most of the 1800s, New York City addressed this issue by ferrying large numbers of its poor and mentally ill across the East River to Blackwell's Island, a tragically underfunded and grossly mismanaged institution for the city's so-called undesirables. My guest on the show today is Stacy Horn, a nonfiction author who joins me to talk about her new book on the subject, Damnation Island, Poor, Sick, Mad, and Criminal in 19th Century New York. Over the years, Stacy has appeared on NPR's All Things Considered, and she's also the founder of the New York City-based social network Echo. Stacy's previous books include Unbelievable, Investigations into Ghosts, Poltergeists, Telepathy, and Other Unseen Phenomena from the Duke Parapsychology Laboratory, and The Restless Sleep Inside New York City's Cold Case Squad. All right, now let's dive into today's show. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast, bringing you strange but true things from the past. It's not the average history that you learned in school. All right, Stacy Horn, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you've written a book, Damnation Island, Poor, Sick, Mad, and Criminal in 19th Century New York. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Well, uh, this is my sixth nonfiction book. Um, and I think what they all have in common is I'm telling some dark period of our history. And in this case, I'm talking about uh, public health in 19th century New York. Interesting topic. I mean, healthcare is still at the forefront of everything we talk about today. So uh, you describe one particular place, Blackwell's Island, and um, a lot of people might not be familiar with that. Can you describe where this island is uh, for those who aren't familiar? Sure. Uh, Well, as most people might know, Manhattan is an island and on the east side um, we have a channel called the East River and Blackwell's Island is this thin longish island it's about two miles long and at the widest point it's 800 feet wide and it sits between Manhattan and the borough of Queens. Okay and today it's not known as Blackwell's Island right? Today it's Roosevelt Island. No, today today it's Roosevelt Island, and it was re-envisioned in the 1960s as a place for mixed-income housing. Okay. Um, well, let's kind of break down what, uh, what it looked like in the 1800s. There were several institutions on this island. What was the layout of these different organizations? Well, I'd like to just back up just a little bit. Um, the city bought Blackwell's Island in the early 19th century, and the reason they did this was because Bellevue, which is now a large public hospital in New York, um, was also the home for the city's lunatic asylum, a couple of penal institutions, and the almshouse for the poor. And as a result, Bellevue was horribly overcrowded and conditions were really inhumane. So the city bought um, Blackwell's Island 
uh, as a place to build replacement institutions. And they really had the best of intentions. Like Blackwell's Island at the time was just this beautiful, bucolic um, place filled with fruit orchards. It was owned by one family. And so in their minds, they were sending these groups of people to out to the country, and it was viewed as a sanctuary. So one by one, they built um, going from south to north. I'm probably going to get the order wrong, but they built a, another public hospital, um, a penitentiary, and that was um, where people were, who were convicted of felonies were sent. A workhouse, that was where people who were convicted of minor crimes were sent. An almshouse for the poor. And a lunatic asylum. And I'm calling it a lunatic asylum because that's what it was called at the time. Right, that's not the term for today. But yeah. at the time, that was the parlance. Yeah. And so around forty to 50,000 people were admitted there yearly. Um uh, probably the workhouse was the busiest. Um, I think it was like twenty to 30,000 people were sent there every year for crimes like intoxication, disorderly conduct. And there was, at any one time, there's about 7,000 inmates on the island. So it's actually a massive institution with tons of people coming in and coming out. Yeah, and sadly, about 1,000 people died there every year. Annually. Yes. Okay, so who's ending up on this island? Because based on what we know about the 19th century, I'm sure that all minorities and men and women are being treated equitably, right? <laughs> it was the main overarching um, description is they were poor. This is where the poor went. Uh, like, for instance, at the Lundic Asylum, if... Uh, members of wealthy families had people suffering from mental disorders. They did not go to Blackwell's Island. They would go to a private asylum called Bloomingdale. And the almshouse was essentially a place for people who had reached the end of their lives and had no place to live. Um, Charity Hospital was a public hospital. Again, if wealthy people got sick, they would go to a private hospital. Uh, the only two places that should have been more democratic were the workhouse and the penitentiary. These are penal institutions, so it shouldn't matter um, your income status. You know, if you committed a, committed a crime, that's where you should have been sent. But uh, in the course of my research, I discovered that the wealthy almost never went to prison. And uh, even wardens um, would write in their annual reports uh, that I, I came across this one warden who just said right out, he goes, you know, I can't help but notice that you only send poor people to me. And we know the wealthy commit crime. So what's up with that? And he said, like, outright in his report, he goes, this shows me that the wealthy can evade the law and its punishments. So they're either bribing judges or are able to afford enough of a legal defense to get out of it? Yeah. Uh, Some well, things don't change. <laughs> Sadly. I mean, this book, my research was just the discovery of one injustice after another. And I think a lot of this was, unfortunately, 
inadvertently set up. The way it was run, it was um, the, all the institutions uh, on the island were put under the control of a department called the Department of Public Charities and Correction. So, and then there were three commissioners who were appointed um, to run these institutions. So but it was even a matter in that of, title alone, you're equating poverty with criminality. And that's exactly my point. It just it created this terrible association in people's minds that these groups of people, poor people, people suffering from mental disorders, and actual convicts were basically one in the same. They were all guilty of something, and they were all dangerous. All right, so the way you chose to write this book was through the lens of an individual, a historical person who went to the island. He was a reverend named William French. And I just thought that was a really interesting way to approach this, because you, as you go from each building on the island, you give his perspective. Why did you choose to, to write from his point of view? I guess bottom line, I liked a guy. When I was you know, conducting my research, I was looking for the most personal accounts that I could get. For instance, the Department of Public Charities and Correction produced an annual report every year, and each warden and person who oversaw their institution had a report on the status of their institution. And I read every one of those, and those were great. And those wardens and, and superintendents were surprisingly frank. But French just, he wrote with such heart. Uh, every year he, um, he produced um, an annual report himself, and he would write about each institution in the order of how he would come upon them each day. And I actually copied that in the structure of my book. I go from building to building in order of how he would walk around the island. And he just, he was just always trying to help. He had limited means, he was only one man, and, and this was thousands and thousands of people, and he just kept trying to make a difference. I talk about the fact that he established libraries in each of the institutions. And I, I think it's hard for people of today to understand just how stultifyingly boring and how that can destroy your health. It, when you're sitting, I'm trying to think of how to describe this. Well, actually, Nellie Bly describes it in her book. If I could, well, did you, is it okay if I jump around? Absolutely, jump ahead to that, because her description of the island is, is really eye-opening. So go ahead. Well, Nellie Bly was an investigative reporter, and she was assigned by New York World to report undercover about the asylum. So she feigned mental illness, got herself committed, and was sent to the lunatic asylum on Blackwell's Island. And she describes horrible abuses uh, by the nurses in the lunatic asylum. And part of the problem there was, even though all these institutions were started with the best of intention, one by one, within a couple of years of installing these institutions, it became as bad as anything that had existed when they were at Bellevue. And the two main reasons for that were the city of New York and these commissioners underestimated just how expensive it is to run these uh, institutions well and the size of the populations that they would ultimately serve. So they were always overcrowded and never had enough money. 
So Nell, so one of the things that they did to save money was they uh, took convicts from the workhouse and used them as nurses and attendants in the lunatic asylum. And so where they would just abuse and often torture, literally torture these poor inmates. And nobody would ever believe them. Like if they complained to the doctors, um, the nurses would just say that didn't happen. And the nurses were always believed because, well, these people are insane. That's and just unconscionable to think. They're bringing uh, in convicts, people who have done God knows what, and letting them be the aides to these people, probably unsupervised, I'm assuming. Completely unsupervised. And, and I talk about this in my book, how this often led to deaths in the Lunatic Asylum. The Lunatic Asylum was actually one of the deadliest institutions on the island. The, more, the mortality rates were generally more than or roughly equal to the mortality rates on the island's major hospital. And that was a hospital that was serving the poorest people in New York, so therefore they were the least healthy people in New York, and yet the lunatic asylum competed with them for mortality rate. So anyway, in, Nellie Bly describes these terrible abuses, these, and she has these horrifying scenes that she describes. But in a strange way, she describes, like, what a day was like for them and there's there's no abuse well little abuse in this description but it it just captures how horrible it could be it, can i read this is that okay yeah absolutely now, now you're reading from her book uh 10 days in a madhouse right yes okay um she she's describing how they were made to sit all day on benches and they weren't allowed to have a book or do anything to fill up their time um, and this is what she says. I was never so tired as I grew sitting on those benches. Several of the patients would sit on one foot or sideways just to make a change, but they, they were always reproved and told to sit up straight. If they talked, they were scolded and just told to shut up. If they wanted to walk around in order to take the stiffness out of them, they were told to sit down and be still. What accepting torture would produce insanity quicker than this treatment? Here's a class of women sent to be cured. I would like the expert physicians who are condemning me for my action um, to take a perfectly sane and healthy woman, shut her up, and make her sit from 6 a.m. until 8 p.m. on straight back benches. Do not allow her to talk or move during those hours. Give her no reading and let her know, let her know nothing of the world or its doing. Give her bad food, harsh treatment, and see how long it takes to make her insane. Two months would make her a mental and physical wreck. Now, the interesting thing I learned about um, Nellie Bly um, reading her book um, was that she had originally, well, the Lunatic Asylum was originally set up to house 200 people. Um, and they, that was quickly overwhelmed. So they started building these alternative structures. Uh, one of them was called the Lodge and the retreat. And both of these um, were where they would put on um, the most violent and excitable inmates. And they became quickly famous for being the, the most dangerous parts of the assignment. Uh, so when Nellie Bly got herself committed, she had originally intended to get herself put in either the retreat or the lodge. She was actually put in the main asylum, which was the nicest part 
of the asylum and she was put in one of the nicest wars in the asylum and when she saw how just how bad it was in the nicest part she she completely changed her mind and decided not to try to get put in the retreat or the lodge and in my book i describe one of the murders that took place there and they're putting they're not isolating the the most violent of the mentally ill well they tried but what happened was because it was overcrowded they were always putting um too many people in each room like rooms that were designed for one person they would sometimes put two three four five or six wow and and that's interesting i didn't know that about her book that she actually saw relatively speaking the better part of the asylum yeah exactly so how did she get in? Was that a very difficult task for her? Because she has to pretend to be insane. There's an evaluation process, right? It was actually relatively easy to get committed to the island. Um, what we would just call simple anxiety disorders would could get you committed to the island. Um, but theoretically, um, the the way it was supposed to work. Well, police could pick you up. If you were acting strange on the street, police could pick you up, bring you to police court, and uh, police court justice could sign a warrant of commitment. Family members could do the same. They could, they could take you, they could get a doctor who was willing to say, yeah, you're crazy. And often just paying a doctor to just say, you're crazy. They would take you to police court and get you committed. The sad thing was, they just it was just so poorly run that one doctor um testified before a senate committee looking into abuses at the asylum he told the the, the committee that they found um at least 60 patients without commitment papers or any kind of admissions documents so basically no one knew who sent them there what their problem was or even how long they'd been there that's just unbelievable. How, how do you treat somebody? Like having no idea what their condition is, where they came from. Well, that's another issue. Like treatment at the time, before the 19th century, um, and, and this is probably something that you well know, um, mental illness was viewed, uh, uh, could be possession and they had very barbaric views of treatment. And when the lunatic asylum went up, uh, the city officials um, hired consultants. They visited uh, an asylum that had just gone up in Philadelphia based on something called moral treatment. So moral treatment basically said instead of doing things like bloodletting and putting them in straitjackets and in prisons, let's treat them with kindness and compassion, feed them well, dress them well, give them good housing and occupations. And maybe if we respond with kindness, they might heal better, which of course is common sense. Of course they're going to do better in those conditions. But there wasn't much therapy um, in those days. Okay, so not having a whole lot of idea of how to treat mental illness, the idea was isolating them from the rest of society, how to occupy their time. And yeah, and to give them occupations for their time. But as Nellie Bly said, instead they were made to sit, you know, sit up straight on benches, you know, for 12 hours straight. And then 
in the evening, like around six or seven o'clock at night, they'd be sent to the rooms where the door would be locked and it would not be unlocked until the next morning. So it's much more of a prison than a, than a hospital. That's how it would have described like, like, and it's just, they didn't get anything right. Like they had like these rules that they set up, like how someone's supposed to be admitted and what the process and procedure was. And one simple thing, that they were supposed to do whenever um, someone was admitted, they were supposed to get a bath and a fresh um, pair of clean clothes. I remember this part. This part's just gross. Oh, it, it's horrifying. Uh, so there was no plumbing in those days. So water had to be carried over in pails, and they quickly realized this just was not doable. So they would fill up a few t- tubs in the beginning of the day. And then women, as they came in, had to just go into that same bathwater over and over and over again throughout the day. And these are, again, poor women, women who are not living in the best of conditions, often on the street. So they could have all kinds of diseases. Uh, they could be filled with lice and they could be a have been playing with their feces. So very quickly, that water just became more sludge than water and alive with all kinds of life. And if here you are, you know, suffering from some sort of disorder and being made to get into that. And if you didn't, then you'd have some workhouse convict shoving you into there. All right. Well, that's the, the asylum part, which you mentioned is, is maybe one of the, the worst institutions. But the island also houses a penitentiary, a workhouse, an almshouse. Um, you, meant, you touched on it a little bit, um, but can you talk a little bit more about the Victorian understanding? How do they understand crime and poverty? And they had different kinds of poor? Yeah, uh, because each institution filled up very quickly and they and, and now I'm talking about the alms house that was where um people would go to live when they had no place to live to is, try is to it fair to think of the alms house kind of as a homeless shelter today yeah is, is that a fair comparison yeah. that's a very fair comparison so what they did was they divided the poor into two categories worthy poor and unworthy poor and worthy poor were widows, disabled veterans, um, or children. Anyone else was put into the category of unworthy poor. If you were poor, if you couldn't get a job, um, and, and you were not in one of these categories, it had to have been a result of some moral failure on your part, and you needed reform, not relief. And certain societal things that might complicate issues like um, discrimination against immigrants, like the Irish at the time that I was writing, or women having a hard time getting a job, these just were not taken into account. So if you were put into the category of the unworthy poor, you could not get help at the almshouse. Your only option would be to get yourself convicted and sent to the workhouse. So now you're essentially. A convict. And back to the wealthy, we were talking about, I was mentioning how the wealthy never went to prison. Um, the Women's Prison Association, it was kind of a known thing. So the Women's Prison Association uh, conducted an investigation and they just went to the courts to witness just what was happening. 
And what they found were if someone um, of means showed up at all in police court, their cases were just dismissed or they were, you know, given a fine that they could easily pay. So once again, only the poor were going to prison. And in fact, um, at the time, they, they, if, when you were arrested in New York at the time, you were taken to the police court. Um, and the justices there had the power to just send you to the workhouse if you were talking about minor crimes. Um, if, it was a, if it was a more serious crime, you would be held over for a, a, for a superior court. Um, so they were often sending people, so the poor, to the workhouse with such frequency that the, it, the police courts were often called the poor men's courts. This is, I, from your book, disproportionately affecting um, certain groups over, over others, particularly the poor. But the poor end up being you know, disproportionately a lot of women, right, and, and a lot of immigrants as well. Well, that was one thing that surprised me. Like, I... I being a history nerd, I, I was aware that immigrants have always been targeted unfairly. Uh, but when I was researching the workhouse, I was very surprised to see that women were sent to the workhouse with greater frequency than men. And there was like a 20 year period when there was always more women in the workhouse than men. And that really surprised me, especially in the 19th century where women were at least theoretically supposed to be coddled and taken care of and here we are throwing them in prison so i looked into that and what i found was that they were most often sentenced um to the workhouse for the crime of disorderly conduct and this is a crime that exists today and it was worded broadly then and it's worded broadly that now and it basically it, it says if you're making a nuisance of yourself in public in some way the police can arrest you and you can go to jail and in practice uh it meant whatever the police and the courts wanted it to mean and so they used it to target groups that they wanted to keep in line and so that was the poor immigrants and surprisingly to me women and it it's used in the exact same way today except now they're targeting african americans so, so the workhouse is, it was almost like a debtor's prison, was it? That they kind of assigned you a fine and then you have to go work it off? No, it, it, it actually is a prison um, for minor crimes. It just included poor people, like the, the simple crime of being poor. Um, but it was where people were sent who were convicted of crimes like, again, disorderly conduct, intoxication, small crimes with sentences generally um, of 10 days to a month or three months. So there was a huge turnover there. Um, and they were, you know, when they were convicted and sent to the workhouse, they were expected to work. Um, so but the thing- you're not just languishing in a cell. For the most part, yes. And the things that they did was they produced the items that were used on Blackwell's Island. Um, sadly, that since the death rate was so high on Blackwell's Island, they spent a lot of time doing things like sewing shrouds or building coffins. I, it was terrible. I had this one year where they list the number of items that they're building, and it, among the items that they're building, they list 1,731 adult coffins, but also 1,186 
children's coffins. It was just so sad. They also were building all the straitjackets and other forms of restraints that were being used um, on the women in the lunatic asylum. Oh, and I should clarify, when the lunatic asylum was first opened, it was uh, both male and female. Uh, but in the 1870s, they built another lunatic asylum on another island, and they sent the men there. So the lunatic asylum on Blackwell's Island became, for the most part, women's only. They would always ha- uh, women only. They would always assign, uh, commit a small number of men there to do uh, the work that the women couldn't do. But it was primarily an asylum for women. Um, they would also the people in the workhouse would build. Um, items that ultimately became murder weapons in the lunatic asylum. One of the ways, this is so sad, but one of the items that um, inmates would use to kill each other were these chamber pots um, that were built in the workhouse, these wooden buckets that they would use to, unfortunately, bash the heads in of their fellow roommates. Wow, and and that's something that, that apparently the staff uh, of the asylum weren't able to really put a stop to. It's not like they or even they really try. <laughs> I There was one year where it just got so bad in the asylum, the, the Senate conducted an investigation. Uh, and one of the things they investigated was this murder. Um, and it, it just... It's just such a perfect example of everything that went wrong and about how the island and the asylum was run. But one night, this night nurse shows up for duty, and I forget that she was, uh, it was in the retreat. And so she was responsible for all one woman and three workhouse convicts were um, responsible for all the inmates that night. And she heard, you know, a commotion in one of the rooms and she unlocked the door and one woman was bashing in the head of another woman using a chamber pot. And a third woman who was also in that room with them is like trying to cower away as far as possible from this scene. But these were tiny cells. So the farthest she could get away was 10 feet. So she closed the door, ran for help. The doctor took an hour to get there. And then he just bandaged her head and starts to leave. And the nurse says, you can't leave her here. She's like really mortally wounded. You have to send her to the hospital. And he refused. And she kept begging him. And he just kept refusing. And he left. And the woman died. So this comes up in the Senate investigation. And they interview all. So they didn't bother to remove her from the situation or find her a new cell or separate these two. No. No. I mean, it's just crazy so there's a grand jury investigation and and so they find fault with the doctor for ignoring the nurse's uh repeated requests they find fault with how it was run like leaving all these inmates you know with one nurse and three convicts and having one doctor who was a recently um graduated medical student i I think he'd only been practicing for a year with the tremendous responsibility of of the care of all these women and alone so they find fault with everything the only person that gets fired over this is that night nurse who who raised the alarm yes and and they decide the the guy the superintendent of the lunatic asylum fires her for gross negligence. He said, 
Um, when she came upon the murder, she she relocked them in, and that was the problem. And I thought about, like, well, what choice did she have? Like, she's one woman, and she's got this other woman who's big, strong, and with a murder weapon. She couldn't break this up herself. If she left the door unlocked, then this woman would get out and put other people in danger. I mean, what what could she have done? Right, and she's very low on the hierarchy there at the, at the asylum. Exactly. So I assume if she raises too much of a fuss with the doctor she's looking at losing her job well that's the thing i uh, there they they kept journals of um all the incidents that would happen and so i looked through the journals and she had reported repeatedly problems with this woman and people bullying her and attacking her and had begged that she be moved prior to this and they just ignored her over and over and over. She tried several times and they kept ignoring her. So you also talk about the hospital on the island, the charity hospital. Now, when I think of a hospital today, I think if I'm extremely sick, I'm going to go to the hospital because that's the place you go where when you need elevated care, the best care. But that's completely different than what we're talking about with hospital in the 19th century. Actually, of all the institutions on Blackwell's Island, that was the one that I felt came closest to what they had originally intended. Like the care was not great, but it was comparable to other hospitals in the 19th century. I mean, it wasn't until the end of the 19th century, for instance, that most hospitals were practicing um, antiseptic surgery. So they were all bad to a certain extent. Um, there were some things I found that were questionable. I found, um, and I wrote about um, some medical experiments that took place uh, at Charity Hospital. And when I came across the first, I thought, now this is interesting. I wonder if there are more, because we're essentially talking about a population, poor people. So there's very little oversight um, and regulation about this. So they would be probably pretty free to conduct any experiments that they wanted and nobody would be the wiser. So I tried to find more examples and I wrote about the few that I found, but I didn't find that many. Um, but I suspect that's because there aren't records of the experiments that were conducted. But other than that, towards the end of the 19th century, I would say it wasn't a bad hospital. And they also um, established a nursing school. It wasn't the first in the country, but it was like among the first. Nurses, trained nurses was still a relatively new thing in the 19th century. That's a good point. To be fair, no hospital in the country at this point in time is particularly good having a lack of understanding of you know germ theory. They're just kind of putting several sick people in in a confined space not fully understanding how disease works and transfers exactly exactly the one surprise that i came across and no well many surprises but another big surprise for me when i was researching all these institutions were how few african-americans um were in each of these institutions i mean they did exist and when they were there, they were segregated, but they're just the, the the percentage was really, really small. So I looked into that. 
And I decided that the reason that they were there was um, came out of just how badly they were treated when all these institutions were at Bellevue. And I'd like to read just a couple of quotes. Like this is um, a quote of a description of adults in the almshouse section when it was at Bellevue. And the commissioners wrote, in the building assigned to colored subjects was an exhibition of squalid misery never witnessed by your commissioners in any public receptacle for even the most abandoned dregs of human society. Here was a scene of neglect and filth and putrefaction and vermin. The same apparel and the same bedding had been alternately used by the sick, the dying, the convalescent, and those in health. It was a scene the recollections of which are too sickening to describe. Then they described children who were in a separate area. On visiting the almshouse at Bellevue about this period, the colored children were found collected in a cellar under the care of a man of intemperate habits who was also at intervals deranged. And so as a result of this, um, the African-Americans of New York at the time pooled their money and created um, two institutions, the Colored Orphan Asylum and the Colored Home. And these are places where orphan children and uh, African-Americans who would normally have gone to the almshouse could go. And I believe if they had any choice or say in the matter, they would go to these institutions rather than Blackwell's Island. So African-Americans had an alternative, for lack of a better word. Yes. And they did get much better care there than everyone else got on Blackwell's Island. The mortality rates in their institutions were lower. Which is kind of counterintuitive for what you would expect from the post-Civil War era. Exactly. But that was also because it was funded to a large degree and run um, by members of the African-American community. The, the exception to that is the Department of Public and Charities and Correction were responsible for all the poor, regardless of color, um, in New York. So when these institutions came about, they realized that these people were taking on something that they were responsible for, so they contributed to the care. Like, I, I I don't have it memorized, but they uh, they gave a certain amount for each inmate in each institution. Um, and, and you uh, also talk about the, the penitentiary. The idea of the penitentiary is that the, these inmates will go and be reformed and come out as productive members of society. Is that actually what's going on here? No. I, and it's kind of the way prisons operate today. Uh, I took a I told the story of this one teenage girl, um, Adelaide Irving, who was arrested as a pickpocket when she was 15 years old, and she was given a sentence of two years in the penitentiary, which is just an insane sentence. Usually people for that crime would get 10 days. She got two years and a fine of $500, which again, was a, a sum that she never could have raised. And she's, and not, she, a, she's not a lifelong criminal. She's, she's 15, right? She's a kid. She's a kid. And uh, I mean, how many kids make stupid mistakes at that age? Maybe that, not that crime in particular, but just 
who knows better at that age? And and I use her an example to show how someone can get dragged down and never recover. And ultimately, she died in her 20s um, at Sing Sing. And I described that end, which to me was just so heartbreaking. Um, and the same kind of thing comes today. Like, I end my book in 1895 um it was a relatively positive year in the sense that the department of public charities and correction and the city of new york were acknowledging the problems in each institution and they were coming up with plans to fix them um one of the things they did was that the the care of the mentally ill was transferred from the city and the state so they took over that care and they spent more money and it was going well at first although ultimately it would end up being just as bad um they decided that the penitentiary and the workhouse were just so bad that the only thing to do was start over so they bought rikers island with the idea that they would build a brand new state-of-the-art penitentiary and workhouse. This time they would get it right. I end in 1895. They're they're on the road to recovery for each of these institutions, and I thought, well, I better have an epilogue. So I start researching, you know, what happened after 1895 and where are we today? And uh, and of course, I don't have to say it's just like one unhappy ending after another, and. The penitentiary and the workhouse on Rikers Island, once again, within a few years, was just as bad as it was on Blackwell's Island. Because, of course, the big mistake they made was thinking that the problem was in the buildings. And it wasn't. It's in the criminal justice system and the injustice in the policies and practices that have evolved. So I I read this Department of Justice report about how teenagers are treated on Rikers Island, and it, 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 I defy anyone to get through that without crying. I mean, the things that I read, it, I, we're all going to hell for this if there is a hell. And, and it was just, it was sad just to read the word teenagers because at the time in the 19th century, um, they were sending children to the penitentiary. I found um, kids as young as eight years old being sent to the penitentiary. And so the law was changed eight so years that... Old. What do you eight send years an eight-year-old to a penitentiary for? Well, you know, if you're homeless, which a lot of children were at that time, you're doing what you can to survive. So maybe he stole something. Maybe well, he stole food. One thing that I noticed that, that keeps popping up throughout, throughout the book is you keep referencing, uh, you know, this inmate was... Um, charged with vagrancy, which mm-hmm. sounds like just a blanket law for you're homeless, you're on the streets, we don't want to see you on the streets. Yeah, being homeless is a crime. So, so they tried for reforms, and um, I believe when my book ends, the, that the age, um, the youngest you could be um, and still sent to the penitentiary was 14 years old. And they had to fight really hard to get that. And even though they fought really hard to get that, they still sent... Um, children to uh the penitentiary i would look at the the census reports in their annual reports every year and there were still um children being sent under 14 i guess again because who was watching so it was very disturbing to read that a hundred years later that the age had only been raised to 16 so essentially we are still sending children to prison and it was just changed. So as of October of this year, it's, it's going to be raised to 18. 
Well, here we are in 2018, and we're just now raising that bar to what we socially commonly accept as adulthood. Exactly. And these these youth, when they go to these penitentiaries, they're being exposed to um, actual hardened criminals who've been doing this for a long time, and they're being socialized in that system. Yeah, and and there's just one story after another that I would come across where um, girls were sent to the island. Um, when they would um, be released, they'd go, you know, they'd come by ferry back from the island to a dock in Manhattan. And at that dock in Manhattan, predators would be waiting for them. Women would, would be there to just pick them off, you know, to say, come here, I'll take care of you, I'll give you a place to live. And it was really... Um, what was then called a disorderly house, but it was a house of prostitution where they would be drugged, raped. And once that happened, you know, they were lost. Like society did not forgive a woman, um, even if it was rape, to have this happen to you. So they'd have no choice but to stay there and now make their living as prostitutes. My last question for you, this is what's really interesting about history. And I think when people start to read it and understand it, they, they recognize that it's not just stuff from the past. It's a continuing story of things we, we deal with today. Um, so after doing all, all your research for this book, why do you think that this was allowed to happen? And, and why did it, was it permitted to exist for so long? Because it's not like, like New Yorkers didn't know what was just across the river, right? No, it was notorious. The only reason why I have some semblance of sympathy is I look at myself. And every day I read some terrible story about someone, um, you know, dying in a prison. You know, they're thrown into solitary and they die or someone sh some unarmed kid is shot or and, and not just criminals like in, in healthcare, You know, someone is not getting the help that they need either for physical or mental illnesses. What am I doing? I know it's terrible out there. I know people are suffering. I know there are great injustices. People are being wrongly targeted. Um, you know, immigrants are being deported. I mean, it's a horror show out there. What am I doing? I, I feel paralyzed. I feel overwhelmed at just how bad it was. And it, to me, when I read about the 19th century, it feels like a similarly overwhelmingly bad point in our history. And the people walking around, they must have felt just as helpless and overwhelmed as I do now. It's not an excuse. I'm just, it's an explanation. I think that's a great way to put it. Yeah. And the wardens, like, I, I, I describe them as bad guys, but I would say it was 50-50. Like, half the time, they were very, very decent men. And in their annual reports, they would beg year after year for more help, more money, for trained staff, this, that, and the other thing. And their, their, their calls for help were unneeded. A fascinating story, um, definitely a depressing story, but um, something that I learned a lot about. And there's, there's a lot more detail that you go into the book. You share a lot of these stories of individuals who found themselves in the various areas on Blackwell's Island. And so if someone wants to learn a little bit more about this topic, where can they go to learn more about your work? Uh, I have a website, stacyhorn.com, um, where I 
tell some more stories that didn't get into the book. I post pictures. I also talk a lot about my cats. <laughs> so <laughs> there's that. <laughs> well, I, you know, with topics such as this, I think you, you need something to lighten the mood. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Stacey Horn, thank you very much for being a part of our discussion today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Thank you for joining me for episode three of the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. If you're interested in supporting the show, one easy thing you can do to help is subscribe to the podcast and consider giving it a five-star review on iTunes. If you are especially interested in the topic Stacy and I discussed today, head over to the show's website at www.cantmakethisuppodcast.com where you'll find today's show notes that discuss some of my personal reflections on today's conversation and provide some additional resources where you can learn more about this topic. And then if you want to stay up to date with the upcoming shows, follow the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash can't make this up history podcast and on Twitter at CMTU history. On that note, since putting the podcast up on Twitter, I've had the opportunity to meet some other podcasts in the history arena, and there's a great community out there of history podcasts. So I wanted to take a minute to just offer a shout out to a couple of them that I've met over the past week. I'd like to acknowledge Bree and Fry of the Pontifax Podcast. You can find them at, at Pontifax Pod. They have a fun show where they rank the popes, all 266 of them, based on a number of fun and lighthearted criteria. I think I'm on episode five. Uh, it's been a lot of fun to listen to and interact with them back and forth online. Uh, and then I'd like to acknowledge the Russian History Podcast, which you can find on Twitter at, at R-U-H-I-P-O-C-A. And they go through all of Russian history, starting at prehistory, uh, going all the way up through the present. Fortunately, they're only a handful of episodes in, so there's plenty of time for somebody to catch up. But I've had a real good dialogue with them over the last week as well. All right, that's it for today's episode. Again, I hope you enjoyed what we talked about today, and I hope to see you back here again for our next episode on October 12th.